listening to highlights from the Creative Processes interview with Erlen Cooper, a Scottish composer, producer, and multi-instrumentalist. The Creative Process podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. Music has the ability to kind of transport you to a place and create a sort of internal landscape. It can draw things out of you that maybe you didn't know were there. And in fact, the first record I made, Soul and Goose, was a response to a sort of claustrophobia and anxiousness that we all face on day to day and we all have life-changing things that happen to us. And I remember I made it as a way to kind of ease a busy mind and perhaps I was missing home. I still call Orkney home even though I'm not there every day. (laughs) I'm a thousand miles away today and I still call Orkney home. For example, when I hear the voice of the curlew It transports me back to Orkney with such a jolt in a heartbeat. And music can do that too. It's very transformative. Visual arts have the ability to do that too. And you could stare at a Rothko painting and cry and not quite know why. It can take days to figure out perhaps certain meanings from it. But music, I think, is quite instant. It can really do that. Recently, somebody tapped me on the shoulder after a performance, a concert, and said, I recently lost my father and I put on this record of yours and I cried my eyes out. And as somebody who makes music, you can't think on those terms. You don't think about those dots that are joined. You just create something that comes from a narrative place, comes from a point that evokes certain feelings. It made me think a little bit longer about all of the arts and how we connect with them. Of late, I've tried to explore that narrative a little bit further, this idea of collaborating with not just the landscape or the elements, which I've done in the past, the air, the sea, the land, and all of those three elements, all of the kind of areas that they bring, the additional aspects of narrative from folklore and community. I tried to go a little bit deeper in a couple of works of Lee. I recently wrote a classical piece of music, I suppose arguably my first concerto with Daniel Pioro, an incredible violinist. And I went up to Glasgow and we recorded this piece of work with this wonderful ensemble called Studio Collective, these fantastic musicians all gathered in one room. And I'd said to them prior that we're going to do this recording. And at the end of the recording, I'm going to to put it onto a magnetic tape, so a 10-inch reel-to-reel tape, the kind of thing you see at the background on, you know, espionage films. You see it spinning. I use tape a lot in my process, and I told them that once I'd put it onto the tape, I would delete all the digital copies in making the record, mixing it, mastering, all of that stuff. So there only existed one copy, and all of a sudden, this piece of music, this process of creativity became incredibly precious to the people that made it. And somebody came up to me at the end, a cellist, and she said, what, are you really going to delete all these digital files and just have one copy? And I believe you're going to bury it. And I replied, well, I'm not going to bury it. I'm going to plant it in the earth, in the soil, somewhere in the Scottish Highlands. And I'd like the soil over the next three years to collaborate with the music. So it's my final collaborator. And magnetic tape doesn't like moisture. It doesn't like sunlight. It doesn't like salt. So it's not going to like these elements. But to me, I like the idea that the soil itself would effectively cause a process of decomposition. So I kind of like this idea of to compose, to decompose, and then recompose. So the final piece of work, when it comes out of the earth will be the recomposed sounding recording. And then I would re-articulate the score 
with the new sounds, these new artifacts of decomposition that have been created by Mother Nature. And everybody looked at me like I was, you know, not quite with it. But to me, it was a, it's a kind of meditation on value, patience in a world of instant gratification. And it asks the question, at what point do you really value the arts or really value music? At what point in a creative process, in a collaboration, does it become incredibly precious and valuable? So it was asking myself lots of questions and teaching me how to be patient and collaborate with a timeline as well as earth itself. I often feel that a lot of facts surrounding the science of climate change and how arguments are presented can be very overwhelming to most people. And people tend to often switch off after a point. I think what the arts and music can do in particular is they can make humans feel something for a moment. And it's when you feel something that you tend to make instinctive decisions about how you might change, how you might go about the rest of your day, how you might make decisions that might affect other people and the arts in particular. So this is a very potent method of doing that, I think. Limitations are the greatest, greatest tools for advancing something. And that's where a narrative for me, works very well, but it acts like a kind of nautical map. I know where I'm going, and I know if I've gone way off course and I shouldn't be there because I look back at the limitations I've set for myself based on the stories within it. Obviously, one of our great British artists is Brian Eno, and he spoke a lot about limitations. And I had the great joy of having a conversation together, just a cup of tea, which I thought would be 15 minutes, but we ended up chatting for a couple of hours. And he said, oh, I want to show you something. I want to show you my library and this tool I've created, his sonic library, which is decades of audio material, things similar. I call it an orphanage of sound, these files and folders that will eventually find a home. But he's created a piece of software using a logarithms that will at random pull out sounds and play them. And he can set certain parameters about, you know, I want a string sound to be here and I'd like some bass sounds to come in and I'd like some drum sounds. But it's just choosing these layers and playing them all at the same time. Again, a bit like the Cacophony of Birds song. It's a bit of a mess initially, but then you can edit and you start to refine. And in those limitations that come out of this tool, and this is the point I guess I'm trying to make, is that it can be used as a tool to set limits or to burst limits, or to mix things up. Out of that editing process, you can output something that to your ear sounds good. To somebody else's ear, I had a, just the other day in the studio, a wonderful choreographer and a dancer making a short film, and I'm scoring the film, but she wanted to read some poetry that she'd written for it, so she read it, and I could tell there was a nervousness, and the words were perhaps not landing how she wanted them to land and there was a frustration but she's a dancer and so I said why don't I set up two microphones in this room that you can see in the studio at either side and why don't you just dance to a piece of music I'll pull up a cue of music and I'm working on that I think touches on the narrative of your film and you could just read whilst you're moving and I'll record your voice and we did it. And she's moving gracefully around the studio, left and right, stopping here and back and forward. And she's reading and every word meant something. The way she breathed. It was like 
watching a violinist or an oboist, all of a sudden there was grace in her words. And then, of course, the recording. You could hear the sound of her feet scraping across the floor and her words were dancing between the microphones. And I played it back and she was really struck by how evocative it suddenly felt and how natural she felt. And why wouldn't it? Because she's in her natural element. I love that side of collaboration when something that neither of you expected that day to happen, happens. I wonder if there'll be these moments, these precious moments in the future where kids will make something and before it's inputted into the world of digital soup for AI to do what it wants with it, before it becomes the public domain, I wonder if there'll be these ceremonies where it's played in a room with five people or it's played in a room with a thousand people before it's inputted out there into public domain and can be used as a tool. And I wonder if those moments will be great celebrations. The moment we press play for the first time and digitize it will be sacred. It will be wonderful. But the moment it's digitized and released into the world, that's it. It can go and grow and land on anybody's shoulder. So I rather like that idea of kids hiding their phones and hiding in a library full of books and these being sacred times, you know, fast forward 400 years. And it's the extreme of off-grid, this idea of, I don't want the ones and zeros of the digital form to get this piece yet in its finished form. So let's play it together before it does. I actually think, and I like to be optimistic, I think live music will become ever more precious for that. Experiences and moments of collective, joyful, difficult, challenging, beautiful experiences will become ever more precious. And music and the arts and writing will all be linked to that. I want to not forget to mention that with Brian Eno, you are involved with Earth Percent. Just tell for those who don't know what it is about Earth Percent and the proceeds. Oh. Of course. Well, he's got a peer group, a charity of brilliant minds that are combating issues surrounding climate change. And instead of just raising money in a traditional way, there's a poetic narrative to this I rather love. This idea that if every composer or songwriter gave a small percentage of their copyrights or the royalty to nature, to earth as a percentage, then wouldn't it be interesting if one day the earth itself held the greatest copyright of music. So every time a piece of music is played or used, synchronized in film, television, or even just played in a shop or performed on stage, it generates a royalty that goes to the bank of earth percent. It means that a lot of musicians who don't have a lot of income can just put part of their intellectual property towards something that in the future might generate revenue. It's like planting a seed. Of course, you have to make the seed and nurture it. And my view is if modest left field composers like myself are doing it, then can you imagine if the likes of pop stars, like, you know, I'm not very good at naming them, but the ones that everybody hears on the radio in the taxi, if they were to donate just 1% of their writing share, then gosh, that's a game changer. And I think it's flowing that way. And that revenue is then there's a group of people who decide how best to, to spend that within the charity itself. So it was a lovely creative idea with a gorgeous poetic narrative, of course, and it's growing as a seed should. I think I go out of my way 
to find the natural world in the city. I stay here at the Barbican in London and it's got these giant towers. But actually there's a nesting pair of peregrine falcons I've discovered in the highest tower. And one morning at 4am, I would normally hear the sound of a blackbird. There's a lot of bird chat in this conversation. And forgive me, I keep talking about birds. I'm clearly a keen ornithological geek, but aren't we all? It's a good thing. This one morning, I couldn't hear the blackbird. And it was because I couldn't hear it that I awoke. But what I did hear was the screech of a peregrine falcon. And that's really inspiring. But there are times I will just walk along the street and you could see, in fact, just last night, the sun setting later. It was the summer solstice yesterday. And there was this orange burning sun just dipping down below the skyline of the city. And it reflected across three buildings through the glass. There's daylight, this last glimmer, or the grimlin, as we call it in Orkney, or the simmer dim, kind of echoing across the glass, reflecting across the glass. And for a moment, we're talking a millisecond, I was on the highlands. I was back home. And it's those moments, you know, they're everywhere. I love to find that little bit of magic in the everyday. Erlind Cooper's music featured in this episode is from his album Folded Landscapes. Music is courtesy of Erlind Cooper and Universal Music Enterprises. We hope you've enjoyed listening to these highlights. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.